You are listening to National Security Law Today. So, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about some of the horribles that you talk about kind of pinging around on these different platforms. Careful listeners will recall that um, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act gives these platforms immunity from publications by third parties, right? So so Facebook doesn't have liability. Gab doesn't have liability. They can't be sued for people posting things that lead to harm, right? But there's a, there's a drumbeat on both the right and the left for different reasons about reforming the CDA and trying to figure out how to hold these companies responsible. What's your opinion about reform for Section 230, how do you think about it as a political football versus an actual tool that can be used to reform these platforms? Yeah, I I mean, I think Section 230 has become this law that a lot of people like to attach lots of meaning to, and like you said, both on the right and the left. What they're really angry at is the First Amendment. And there's actually a great example of this, of of the New York Times had what should have been a very embarrassing correction, uh, but they've made the same mistake repeatedly since then, where they ran a whole thing about how Section 230 invented hate speech, and then they had to write a collection that's like, oh no, we're actually talking about the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States is what protects hate speech, not Section 230. So I think there are areas where we can have Section 230 reform. I think it's probably not that relevant around information, disinformation, and even some of the hate speech, because a lot of that's First Amendment protected and there's no underlying civil or criminal liability for the speakers anyway, right? Is Tucker Carlson responsible for all of the stop the steal crap that he's pushing every night for the racist stuff that he pushes? Does Fox News get sued for that? No, right? Is Alex Berenson responsible or RFK Jr. for their anti-vax work? So far, no, right? And so in those situations where the speakers, there's already kind of well-known speakers who are pushing crazy stuff and they don't face any liability under American law, then Section 230 is is not that relevant, right? Because there's not going to be liability for the, the intermediate platform already. I think where I think there's reasonable places to think about 230 is in situations where you're really talking about it's not really speech, it's actions, and that 230 has been uh, used in ways that are too broad. I think Daniel Citron has talked most eloquently about this and has some ideas about how you make 230 just about speech. And so in situations where companies are not putting like just basic protections in place, uh, you know, there's an example with Grinder, for example, of a bunch of abuse happening, and then them making the argument they're protected by 230, that in those cases is much better. Or things like fraud, where there actually is an underlying crime that 230 should not apply. Although again, 230 is already has a carve out for criminal activity, right? So it doesn't cover child exploitation and such. And then on the right, I think their anger is that these companies have finally applied their content moderation policies to large political influencers, most notably the former president of the United States, but also a number of other people. And they're very angry about that. And again, they're probably angry at the First Amendment. I, you know, I'm not the lawyer here, but my understanding is this new Florida law that requires platforms, um, at least platforms that don't own a amusement park, uh, which is the best part uh, of any law passed in Florida, that companies that don't own an amusement park are required to carry the speech of politicians uh, and can't take them down for content policy. That will be considered compelled speech and unconstitutional. We'll see about that. I guess if that doesn't get struck down, then we're going to have some really bad amusement parks opened by Twitter, Facebook, uh, TikTok, and the like in Florida. But my guess is that that's not going to go through and that changing Section 230 would also not impact that. 
I, let's um let's delve a little more deeply because you're you're right in that especially as things kind of get amplified and become these political cudgels that we do kind of lose sight of the actual law. So there is a separation between you know the First Amendment and Section 230, but at the same time there are limits to the First Amendment. Famously, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. I, I think that the other issue is the kind of amplification. There, There's a debate about whether or not there is a responsibility because you are amplifying speech that protected under the First Amendment, but violates the platform's own policies. Right. So can you talk a little bit about like kind of those and nice distinctions? If I could just briefly say too, to your point, Yvette, we do have incitement statutes, which uh, criminally penalize the person inciting the violence but it's very limited. And the second thing that we have is we have a threat statute that is available under Title 18 of the United States Code. It has to be a real threat, though, and that would not hold any medium, whether it's a platform or a telephone company, liable. But it would certainly allow for a prosecution of an individual who communicated that threat or incitement. No, yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, I think, I mean, what we're talking about here is what people call lawful but awful speech. Right. That there's this huge category of stuff that is not illegal in the United States, at least, that people don't want to see either existing or amplified, as you pointed out. On the amplification question, it's quite complicated. A colleague of mine, Daphne Keller, uh, here at Stanford, just wrote a great piece on this, on like some of the complications around regulating amplification. I think when you talk about amplification, you have to get back. I mean, I agree. I think, one, we want the platforms kind of voluntarily without the law to be much more aggressive. And this is one of the things that we really hit in our report over and over again about election disinformation is they need to hold the individuals to whom they give a huge amount of amplification to a higher standard, not a lower standard, right? Like by by allowing Trump and some other blue check mark users to get away with things that individuals wouldn't, they, they set the expectation that the more important you are, the less you have to follow the rules. And that is absolutely the wrong direction that you wanna go. Whether you can regulate that is a little tougher, I think, and, and Daphne talks about that. Again, one of the issues here is that you're generally not talking about algorithmic amplification. You're talking about people who are popular because other people have decided to listen to them, right? And they're often multimedia influencers, right? Like Ben Shapiro has a bunch of different outlets that he uses to get his voice out. And so certainly he, he's able to use these other outlets to drive people to then be part of his social media kind of ecosystem. And then he gets people to amplify it. And so deciding like at what point there is this now like unlawful amplification is tough. And again, I think almost certainly a First Amendment issue. So I don't think there's gonna be any legal there, but I, I do think, and we have said this repeatedly in our work, the companies need to hold these folks to a higher standard. And that's true for both Facebook, it's true for Twitter, it's especially true for YouTube, where you know you have these issues where Donald Trump is still actually his pages up on YouTube, right? And so if you're a politician or you're really influential on a platform that you know they actually have to hold you accountable. And the other thing they probably need to do is they need to create a variety of different punishments that are applied before you totally take somebody down so that there is an interplay here of banning somebody for 12 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, five days. Because right now also, there's a lot of people who love getting censored and then they use that as a as a fundraiser, they use it as a demonstration of how they're being suppressed. And so you, you need to really think about how the punishments work that you're not incentivizing people to push the line to get banned and to turn that evidence of, of, of how Silicon Valley is, is you know part of a grand conspiracy to, to keep them silenced. 
one of the punishments I think that you've discussed previously, I've heard you in another fora where it's been discussed, is the potential of allowing no monetization when the information has been false. I think some of that seems to me a bit like a loss leader because by the time it's happened, the monetization by the individual has occurred, right? Right. And as we can see, there's people who can make plenty. Again, there's no direct monetization on Facebook, but people are able to turn it into money through you know, the monetization of their audience, either by running their own embedded ads or by selling things and such. Um, so it's it's not a perfect. But I think, I think this goes to kind of like some of the moral and ethical questions here is, to me, there's a difference between allowing somebody to have speech, allowing somebody to have speech that's amplified out to hundreds of thousands or millions of people, and then helping them make money doing so, right? That as for each of those steps, you end up with more and more, you're, you're less of a passive platform and more active. And so like, you're, if, you're, if you're bringing out people to millions of people and you're giving them money directly, then you are pretty darn responsible. The other folks who are in this category that we have to remember is like a big driver of election disinformation right now is Newsmax and OANN. Um, and they have been you know faced with boycotts from advertisers and such but the problem is you're not able to put a lot of pressure on them because they make tens of millions of dollars in carriage fees from cable companies right and and so that's like the other kind of issue we have going on right now is some of these people are big on social media but they're really making their money via comcast at&t verizon uh, other you know charter uh, the cable companies because they're getting a percentage of all the people who view them uh, through their basic cable subscriptions and so again it's kind of this weird multimedia issue where where if you push on monetization on one place they're going to end up monetizing another that's an excellent point and i think it's a point that has been addressed recently by the new administration when they've been talking about efforts to prevent domestic terrorism and the like. But let's let's say for a minute, and, and let me add one thing. I mean, our purpose in having you here tonight is we consider this a national security concern. When you have a country or a house divided against itself, that is not a good thing. Um, and I would add that John Meacham, you know, who's a real historian and a, and a terrific writer, he does see parallels between the divisions that we have right now and those that were present in the United States in the run-up to the Civil War. And that's deeply concerning, I think, to uh, most Americans. But let's say that as far as how these platforms function, how they monetize things, the sort of seductive nature of them and their, their ubiquity, is it's not going to change. So divisions could potentially get worse. And I, I think you make a really good point about sort of our human nature and our desire to hear echoes of our own thoughts and to be, and we do tend to pick friends who have similar views of the world to us, even if we are just maybe from different political parties. But one of the reasons why I wanted you to come in tonight and after listening to you over the last several years is I really want to talk to you a little bit about what you would advise Congress to do. And we have a new administration. And at least my observation of you in the past has been that this sometimes causes you some great discomfort. I've also heard you talk a little bit about some practical solutions. And so I'd like to at least start you off by mentioning one that makes amazing sense to me and seems so apparent and logical, and that's education. Not education on a small scale, but I, I'm wondering what could be done on a massive scale in terms of how these platforms function and what they're doing. What, what do you think? So again, there's the things that I think Congress can do and the things that hopefully the companies would do on their own, right? Um, and there has been some, you know, one of the positive things we saw in the 2020 election was there, the companies were for the first time really aggressive about labeling 
claims that they could not immediately prove as false, but were about the election integrity at all, you know, using those as a place to link to sources of truth. Now, was that effective? That's actually an interesting question. And again, there's there's some research that shows for at least for aggressive partisans that any kind of labeling backfires, right? That they're like, oh, you're not going to tell me what to do or something. But for, and it, but you know, we can't over-optimize for the 20 or 30% of people who want to be fooled, who really have like a lot of personal beliefs tied up in the idea in, in, in their belonging to a certain group or a certain tribe, and therefore not able to be persuaded in any way. So if we look at the persuadables, maybe that is useful. And so I think one, I mean, the, the companies can hopefully be used as part of education because they do have the ability to put stuff in front of people. Um, I think around COVID and vaccines, that that has actually been much more effective than around the political stuff because people are for the, I mean, at least for a while, we're not as directly polarized on it. Um, unfortunately, those kind of political tribes are settling in a bit um, and people are perhaps some of the the same kind of backfire effect that we've seen around uh, political labeling might might occur now, but I don't think that's a reason not to try. And so, you know, I think between the 2020 election and vaccines, there has been much more aggressive action and we want to see more of that. Um, from an international perspective, we want to, you know, as bad as things are here, way more work is done on both the proactive kind of labeling and education side, as well as reactive content moderation in the United States than anywhere else in the world. And so the other thing we need is for when this kind of stuff happens in other countries that the companies will apply the same kind of controls and uh, aggressiveness. Um, and that is, I think, actually a, a serious problem and that we're gonna see some elections over the next couple of years uh, where you know the, the losing party or the party in power are gonna be able to use the platforms to really manipulate public sentiment towards democracy overall. And, and that's gonna be really, really harmful to individuals. So, but yeah, I, I, I wish I, I could say that there's a, a great educational option here. Um, and I, I'm not sure there is, again, because there's a lot of people who are just self-sorting and who, who wanna be fooled. And if there's anything, any area in which you think that would not be true, it would be around, say, vaccines, right? Because you're actually talking about people's lives. You're talking about people who have lost family members, who know somebody in their town who has died. And even then, you know, the polarization has started to uh, set in and made it hard for people to to even have like a, a basis of discussion. And so that is actually kind of depressed me a little bit on, on our ability to educate our way out of this. Well, I think we're talking about sort of the education of, with respect to the content. I think... One of the things that a guy functioning at your level, sometimes I think we forget when we work on cybersecurity issues, how little a lot of Americans understand about how the internet functions, how they're, uh, where they live and their um, socioeconomic background influences what pops up on a Google search. I think that a lot of this is not known to the average American. So when I talk about education, I think I'm talking about a very basic possibility of explaining to people, look, if you um, if you use this, you could enter a filter bubble and you could lose truth. And that's how this works, you know, some sort of a basic explanation of what is happening to them. Because, I mean, I have taught groups of people where uh, on the Privacy Act, and I've come into a room and I've asked a group of people if they think Google is free. And if they would, if they believe that, would they raise their hands? And I see a lot of hands go up and these are sometimes educated people. So uh, let me get your thoughts on sort of that very, very basic level. Yeah. I mean, you're right that I think I, this goes back to kind of a lot of product design assumptions that, you know, the people that design these products 
obviously know how they work. They're educated in the internet and they have very different assumptions. Like one thing that I go back and forth on a lot is on like the verification of users, right? And and sometimes I feel like the, the blue check mark as implemented by Twitter, Facebook, um, and now a variety of other platforms is the kind of thing that it sounds good to the product managers who work at these companies because you're, you're fighting that you're trying to keep people from impersonating others and you're trying to fight like a very basic kind of misinformation of saying you are Joe Biden and therefore, you know, um, convincing people that you've, you're speaking on his behalf. And, you know, it also, there's a lot of people who see something like that and assume that there's some man behind the curtain um, who's making sure that those statements are true, right? And that a blue check mark or some kind of verification badge or any indication in a product that somebody is trustworthy also goes to the content. And I think whether you can educate people on this outside of the product, I'm not sure. I, I do think we do a lot better about making it clear that when you have these kinds of product affordances that you create for one problem, that you're not creating another. Um, and I think there needs to be a lot more, the companies need to do this themselves, but also I think sponsor or participate in much more public studies about how do these different kind of product affordances and UX design uh, issues and such, how they affect how individuals see truth and content and, and the like. Um, and, but I, I, you know, I wish I had a, a really good solution here. I, I'm sorry. I just, I, I don't, um, when I, you know, when I'm dealing with the stuff, I'm mostly thinking from like an adversarial perspective, like who are the people who are doing this and how do you stop them? Um, on, you know, other, there are other people who've thought a lot about how do you kind of have a, a populace who is less vulnerable to this. Um, and I think they have good ideas. I think, it is very hard when your adversary is a significant percentage of people um, and you have an entire political party uh, that's willing to kind of throw away the truth uh, in the pursuit of political power. That becomes a lot more difficult to educate your way out of. All right. Well, Alex, I, I want to say thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, we wish you luck on your efforts. Um, it's really pretty amazing. We'll hyperlink to the eipartnership.net, right? Did I get that right? Okay, great. That's right. Um, I really enjoyed listening to you over the years um, on other people's podcasts uh, through your class at Stanford. It's It's been a pleasure. Um, I really think you're doing a tremendous service to the American public and frankly, to the national security. So we hope that we get a chance to talk to you again in the future. Yeah, thank you for having me. Alex, a, a true pleasure to have you. And that's it for this week. Uh, as we ease slowly but surely out of the pandemic, Please know that we will continue to deliver content to you during these difficult times so that you grow your knowledge of the law, professional opportunities, and events that affect national security law. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments and feedback. We definitely want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec or send us an email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. I'm pretty sure the Twitter algorithm will not lead you to extremist content if you do so. <laughs> the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will continue to bring you content next week and always. Thank you for listening. Don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast, Elise and I, are here in our individual capacities and not on behalf of any agency or firm. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.